1 John chapter 1. Uh, we will be looking at verses 5 through 10. Last time I preached, I didn't finish those verses, so I'm going to finish them this morning. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is God's word. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship, as we come to the preaching of the word, we need you to continue to guide our hearts, to guide our minds, to guide our service. Nothing that we do as believers in this life happens apart from your work apart from you moving in us. We can't take credit for anything. So, Holy Spirit, we need you. Even to worship in spirit and truth, we need you. And and forgive us for not believing that. Forgive us for not believing that. Forgive us for believing that if we just read books and go to conferences, then we got it. Forgive us for all the ways in which we take you for granted. Forgive us for all the ways in which we don't acknowledge your presence in our life. We need Holy Spirit power every day. We need it for our families. We need it in our marriages. We need it as we engage in society. We need it. We don't walk through this life as a powerless people. Forgive us for our unbelief. The same spirit that came at Pentecost is the same spirit that lives in us. And we don't believe that. We believe in other things. So forgive us, Holy Spirit. Forgive us for taking you for granted. And move today, move in our hearts, move in our minds, and use this word to minister to God's people in the places where they truly live. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. On July the 30th, 1967, Joni Edwardson Tada suffered a severe injury from a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay. She misguided the shallowness of the water. The injury left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. So you can imagine all the emotions that Joni went through during two years of rehab. Two years in rehab. The anger, the depression, the suicidal thoughts, the religious doubts. In her book, When God Weeps, While Our Suffering Matters to God, she writes, The cross is the center of our relationship with Christ. The cross is where we die. We go there daily. It isn't easily. Normally, we follow Christ anywhere, to a party, as it were, where he changes water into wine, to a sunset beach where he preaches from a boat. But to the cross, we dig in our hills. We dig in our hills. Why? Why do we dig in our hills? 
You see, the cross isn't just a place where our sins die. It's the place where we die, where self dies. The cross demands our soul. It demands our whole life. It demands our all. It even demands that we do preventive maintenance over our spiritual life. Some of you might not believe it, that you need preventive maintenance in your spiritual life, but someday you will. Sooner or later, you're going to forget Jesus. Sooner or later, you're going to forget the Father. Sooner or later, you're going to forget your union with Christ. See, because as as believers, we don't always believe rightly. And we don't always live rightly. You're going to forget the Holy Spirit at some point, and you're going to experience some suffering at some point in your life. As Christians, we don't consistently believe and live out what we believe in our beliefs. All of us are prone to wonder, prone to leave, The God we love in our thoughts, in our motives, in our actions. A few weeks ago, I talked about two areas of our spiritual life that that needs preventive maintenance. First, it was our understanding of God, who he is and what he does. And the second was our understanding of fellowship. Those two things need preventive maintenance all the time. And the third one I want to talk about today is understanding sin in relation to the believer. Understanding sin in relation to who you are as a believer needs preventive maintenance. It needs it. So who is a believer? I know most of you, if you're a believer, you say, well, that's an easy question, Alice. I know who a, I know what a believer is. But who is a believer? A believer is a person who has come to saving faith in Jesus. This person doesn't simply know stories about Jesus' life and facts about his life. This person has received him as Lord and Savior. They trust him, depend on him, rest on him, submits to him, surrenders to him. Are you such a person? The only way you can be made right with God and justified before him is through Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given by which man must be saved. So do you know his name? Do you know him? Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not good people. Okay, not good people, not righteous people, not moral people. He saved sinners and he saved sinners because of his life and his death on the cross and and his resurrection from the grave. Jesus is your substitute on that cross. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That him hanging on that cross was for, is in your place. And guess what he does on that cross? He receives all of God's wrath that, that is meant towards sin, our sin. He receives it upon himself so that we don't have to. And Jesus has freed you from the bondage of sin. He has rescued you from the wrath of God. He makes you righteous in God's sight. All that's amen statements, people. Now, y'all been here long enough to know what amen, amen statements are. He redeems us. He turns sinners into saints and he turns orphans into sons and daughters. But do you believe it? Do you know that Jesus? Do you have faith in that Jesus? Or do you are you just going through the motions? If not, then you can. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to go through the motions anymore. You can stop performing and start believing. All you got to do is just confess your need of him. Confess your need of him. Confess that your sin has separated you from God. 
Repent of that sin. Turn to God. Ask Jesus to take your life. Ask him to help you surrender and to submit to him as Lord and Savior. Once Jesus covers you in his blood, you are eternally safe. Okay? Once he covers you in that blood, you are eternally safe, regardless of what you go through. And that blood will never lose its power. Think about it. Take it to heart. And that blood won't ever lose its power over believers, even as they continue to struggle with sin. Wait, Pastor. Believers still struggle with sin? Saints still fall short? Sons and daughters of the body still rebel? How is that possible? How is it possible that people who are a new creation still sin? How is that possible? If Jesus has freed us from the power of sin, then why do we still struggle with it? What gives, Pastor? Our understanding of sin in relation to the believer needs preventive maintenance. Why? Because it's easy to misunderstand this. It's easy to receive bad directions when it comes to sin in relation to the believer. So who is giving you spiritual instructions when it comes to sin in your life? Are they reliable sources? Because there's a lot of stuff on the Internet and books that ain't true. That's written by people who claim to be Christians. But God's word is reliable. John is reliable. He gives us he gives us the preventive maintenance that we need to have a proper understanding of sin in relation to the believer. But the brother appears to contradict himself in the process. I don't know if you noticed that as I read through those five verses. He speaks, he seemed to speak out of both ends of his mouth. In verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth that's not in us. And in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. That sounds contradictory. On one hand, if I'm in fellowship with God and I'm walking in the darkness of sin, I'm a liar. I don't practice the truth. And on this hand, if I say I have no sin, I deceive myself in the truth that's not in me. If I say I have not sinned, I'm saying God is a liar and his word is not in me. What in the world, John? My head hurts. I'm confused. I don't know if you ever read that and was confused. I don't understand. You appear to be contradicting yourself, brother, in the same five verses. Is he really? No way, saints. John is performing preventive maintenance on our understanding of sin in relation to the believer. He points out the big difference between living in sin and struggling with sin. There's a big difference. A very big difference. The phrase walking in darkness in verse 6 refers to living, refers to a person who lives in sin with an unrepentant heart, with no sense of conviction or godly sorrow. It's a habitual sinful lifestyle that can either be unrighteousness, self-righteousness, morality, immorality. It could be the one. A believer doesn't live a habitual sinful lifestyle with an unrepentant heart. Doesn't do that. They don't do it because of who their God is and who they are in Christ. You don't have to live in sin. Did you know that? 
Because Jesus gives you something more sweeter and richer than the fleeting pleasures sin can offer. But do you believe that? Sin gives you a generic life. Do you know that? Jesus gives you a name brand life. Some of you love the generic. And that's what sin is. That's all you're ever going to get is the generic. You want the name brand, you come to Christ. He gives true hope, true peace, true joy, true value, true significance, true security, and true freedom. Anything else is generic. Everything else is generic. It's all it's ever going to be. I don't care what it promises you. If it ain't Jesus, it's generic. He gives you the name brand. If you want that, you need to come to him. Don't settle for less. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you are settling for less than what Christ wants for you. You are settling for less. Think about that. You are settling for less. That's the decision that you make. You have a four-star hotel over here, and you're settling for the slums. That's what you're settling for when you live in sin. I don't care how it tastes. I don't care what it is. You're settling for the slums. Jesus offers you the best. Believers don't have to live in sin with an unrepentant heart, but they will struggle with sin for the rest of their life. For the rest of your life. You will battle it. You will fight it. You will engage it for the rest of your life. Do you believe believers still sin? I I didn't hear a lot of yeses. Let me ask you, do you believe believers can commit some of the most heinous sins in the world? Do you believe you're capable of committing heinous sins? See, the yeses have gotten quiet. There are two functional beliefs many people live by today. Many believers live by these functional beliefs as well. The first belief is this. The first belief says it will never happen to me. I'm educated. I have resources. I grew up in a good family. I live in a safe neighborhood. I'm smarter. I'm wiser than most people. I'm good. That won't happen to me. Maybe it will happen to other people. Maybe it will happen to other churches, but not the village church. It will never happen to me. The second is a belief that says, I will never do that. You've said that before. I will never do that. I will never have an abortion. I would never steal. I would never judge another person by the color of their skin. I would never um, go into another country illegally, risking separating separated from my kids. I would never do that. I would never, never do that. But guess what's below the surface of those two functional beliefs? Self-righteousness. Trusting in one's own goodness and one's own morality. Because if you've never done the worst, you haven't been tempted yet. But I guarantee you, all you got, only, only the clouds need to line up in a certain way, and you will do it. Christians still sin. Christians still commit. Christians can commit heinous sins. You're capable of that: murder, racism, adultery, child abuse, domestic violence, substance abuse, and so on. The list can go on. We still fall short. If we haven't done the worst, because of God's grace, it's never because of your goodness. Please know that. The only thing that separates you from the one who's living in a whole bunch of unrighteousness is God's grace. Not you. Not your family. Not how you were raised. It's Jesus. 
if we never committed the works, it's because of Jesus. The belief that it would never happen to you was a lie. The lie from the devil. The belief that you you would never do that is another lie. Now, if you're going to have a functional belief like that, I, I like to call it, you should have the Steve Urkel belief. Did I do that? Yes, you did. <laughs> Am I capable of that? Yes, you are. Let that be your functional belief. Because John says, if you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Claiming to have no sin in your present life is a form of self-deception. How many of you are deceiving yourself? Here's a pop quiz for you. If you can quickly identify and diagnose the sins of other people, then you probably struggle with that sin too. So be careful. If you can quickly identify my sins, I bet you struggle with it too. It may be blindly, but you struggle with it. See, it's a false belief to think that Jesus' death on the cross has made believers sinless. It has not made us sinless. It has changed the way God deals with our sin when we sin. Believers won't ever be sinless in this lifetime. If you believe and live as if you have no sin, then the God's truth is not in you. That's God's word, not Alex's word. It's not in you. It's not in you. Next, in verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God into a liar, and his word is not in us. Notice a little nuance here in, the, in, this, in verse 10 and verse 8. Verse 8 deals with present sins, and verse 10 deals with past sins. It says, if, if you say you've never, ever sinned in your life, you are calling God a liar to his face. So if you never have anything to repent of from your past, you are saying, God, you are a liar. That's what, it's, that's what they're saying. And God is no liar. For all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. Short of his glory. So believers can never say we have no sin. We can't say we've never sinned. We, we can't say it will never happen to us. That we can't say we would never do that. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? See, even though Christ has freed us from the power and dominion of sin, a sinful nature still remains like a remnant. And every believer has two natures. Please understand this. If you are a believer today, you have two natures coexisting inside of you. Okay? A simple nature you inherited from Adam, and a new nature is given to you by Christ through the Spirit. Two. Living in you at the same time. And most of us don't believe that. That's your existence for the rest of your life. Those two natures will live inside of you for the rest of your life. Do you believe it? Galatians 5.17 says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's our life. Do you ever feel conflicted? Pulled in too many different directions? I do. That's the Christian life. Paul says in Romans 7, for I do not understand my own actions. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't understand it. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. That's the sinful nature. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, because he has the spirit, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Man, Paul, it's hard. Now, if I don't do what I, well, if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find this to be a law. When I want to do good, evil is at close hand. That's your resistance. That's the Romans 7 struggle. That's the Romans 7 struggle. And we all have it as believers. Regardless of our race, our class, our gender, our age, we all live in this Romans 7 reality. And none of us is above it or falling into it. None of us are above falling into heinous sin. Freedom in Christ isn't freedom to live in sin. It's freedom to struggle with it with a repentant heart. Okay? That's what freedom in Christ is. That's, that just should be your understanding of sin in relation to who you are as a believer. He, Christ gives you freedom to struggle with it with a repentant heart. To fight it. To rage war against it. To engage it. A repentant heart is a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit. It's a heart that feels the weight of conviction. It's a heart that grieves and laments over its sin. It's a heart that carries a, a godly sorrow. It's a heart that grows with a that has growing that has a growing distaste for the pleasures of sin, self righteous sin, unrighteous sin. It, it, it begins to to not taste good to that type of heart. It's a heart that says. Lord, have mercy on me, a saint who still struggles with sin. Have mercy on me, a saint who still struggles with sin. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, because the blood still works. The blood still works. Gospel artist Donnie McClurkin says, we fall down, but we get up. For a saint is just a sinner who fell down and got up again because we can't stay there. We get back up. We get back up because Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. We get back up because Jesus is in the grave. We get back up because he resurrected from the grave. We get back up because he ascended into heaven. We get back up because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We get back up because the Spirit gives us resurrection power. Okay? Resurrection power. We get back up because in Christ, our sins are no longer counted against us. Everybody should be saying amen. Amen. Come on now. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are no longer counted against him. Whose sin the Father no longer counts towards him. That's in Christ. Now, please know this. They may be disciplined from the Father from our sin, and there will be consequences. Okay? Because those are still real. But your sin, the consequences and the discipline you may receive from them does not change your sonship and daughtership. I said that again. The discipline and the consequences you will experience from your sin struggles will not change your sonship and daughtership 
before the Father. Because they are rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ. And so that means your lifelong struggle with sin would never be powerful enough to snatch you out of Jesus' hands. I don't care what it is or how far you may wander from the Father's house. If you are a believer, you will come back. He will bring you back. The sin cannot remove you from that blood that flows over your life. It will flow over you forever. So your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins are all drenched in the blood of Jesus. You need a word picture for this blood? It's a tornado. It covers you, picks you up, covers you all the days of your life. That's the blood. It will never lose its power. You have freedom, beloved, to struggle with sin without shame, without guilt, without condemnation. Okay? You have a freedom to struggle with sin with a godly sorrow and a conviction that leads you to repentance. A repenting saint is the one who lives in resurrection power. Are you a repentant saint? Or do you love repenting? Do you go to God and repent of your sins daily? That's a resurrection life. A believer who enjoys repenting. Because you know when you go to the throne of grace, there's always forgiveness there. Why do you think we celebrate the Lord's table? I'm hot. I'm starting to sweat. I need some I need a fan right here to blow on me. So why do we celebrate the Lord's table? It's not out of tradition. It's not out of routine. It's not just because it's a ritual. We celebrate it first because God commands us to do it. And we also celebrate it because it reminds us of the gospel. It reminds us of the gospel. This table reminds us of the heavy price that Jesus paid to save sinners. Please know, it was not an easy price. It was not an easy price. Remember his agony in the garden of Gethsemane? Remember what he said to the Father? If it's your will, please remove this cup for me. What cup do you think he's talking about? It ain't this. It's the cross. He agonized over that. But he also said, not my will be done, but your will be done. But your will be done. This table also gives us Preventive maintenance, because the Spirit uses this meal to nourish Christians spiritually. Whatever takes place in this meal is highly supernatural. Our faith is highly supernatural, okay? Highly supernatural. The fact that we can become believers is supernatural, because rationally, we will never come there. Rationally, Christianity does not make sense. It doesn't, because because if the Spirit moves, it makes sense to those who believe. So if you are a believer today, this meal is for you. Now, if you are a believer and you have some sin in your life you have not dealt with or you have unresolved conflict with someone in your life, then I advise you not to partake of the meal because you don't want to take the meal in an unworthy manner. Again, that is from God's word. Friends and neighbors, if you don't profess faith in Christ, I consider it an honor to have you here. And if you have questions of what it means to be a believer, please see me after the service. And adults, I ask that the kids with you abstain from the elements until they have been invited to the table by the church that you are a member of. Now, all kids of the Village Church, I need your attention. 
If you are a child of the village church, please look at your pastor. This is my favorite part of communion. This meal is a reminder to each and every one of you that Jesus loves you. He loves you. That he died on the cross for your sins. And as your pastor, it's my prayer to each and every one of you would come to saving faith and be able to take this meal with your parents or your guardians or grandparents. So until that day happens, please know that Jesus is real. And he loves you. He loves you. Amen? Amen. Amen. So as the officers come forward to help and to assist, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to bless this table. Holy Spirit, I pray as we come before the table that you would take these elements, the bread, this juice, and use them to nourish us spiritually. These are just common elements. But because you are part of the Godhead, because you are part of the Trinity, because you are the Holy Spirit, you can take these elements and nourish God's people. And I pray for those who, who don't know you that you will be moving in their heart to draw them into the kingdom. Holy Spirit, I pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.